right club. Be the right club today. Johnny, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the final episode of the No Laying Up podcast for the year. This is part two of our holiday medley. This is highlights from the second half of the year. Man, this was a lot of fun to put together. We had a lot of incredible guests here in Q4, especially a lot of the top players of the world, as well as mixing in uh, some great stories from uh, from people in the past and Tony Jacklin, all that great stuff. So our friends at Callaway want to thank all listeners who checked out and put their equipment into play this past year. That you know we've passed on a lot of comments from our listeners, you know, to Callaway to help and keep them in the loop as to feedback from people and, and what people are super interested in, and it keeps them. It's made them super excited to continue to work with us. And uh, so on behalf of our friends at Callaway, to our audience, they want to wish you a, a big thank you, a big happy holidays, and thank you for. Uh, for being a part of an incredible golf community. We also want to give a shout out to our friends at Original Penguin. If you got some gift cards, I know listen, we're releasing this pretty late, to, close to the holidays. Uh, it's maybe a little too late to do shopping for someone else, maybe at OriginalPenguin.com. But if you're getting gift cards or you're looking to, you know, I always got money back in the day, like, hey, go, f- I don't know how to shop for you, go figure it out on your own. If you are someone like that, go to OriginalPenguin.com. They have over 400 items currently in their holiday savings event online. They offer free shipping on orders of $75 or more. I just did a big closet reorganization here. Found a bunch of old Original Penguin sweaters that I'd kind of forgotten about. They really make incredible stuff, especially their winter stuff for me. I, I wear their like their knit uh, sweaters. I don't even know if, what you would call it, kind of checkered sweaters all the time. I wear their hoodies all the time, their golf shorts, their polos. It is something for everyone. They got shoes, jackets, suits, bathing suits, t-shirts, dress shirt, many dress, you know, short sleeve dress shirts. I need to start working on that. I want to try to be able to pull that off. That's a goal for 2022. So originalpenguin.com, again, free shipping on orders of $75 or more. Without any further delay, let's get right into it with highlights from the second half of the year. Let's open up part two with episode 492 with number one player in the world, John Rahm. There's a couple different clips merged here together talking about uh, analytics, club foot, and a whole bunch of other stuff. This was a really, really fantastic interview. Episode 492 with John Rahm. It's everyone's favorite topic, of course, and I know it's a, a topic you've covered extensively <laughs> since the memorial. But you know, it, it was one of the wildest scenes of the year, and you know, where you're putting on an all-time <laughs> performance at Memorial. You're playing, and, and we don't know this as fans watching, but that you're you've been in the testing protocol for several days prior to this, knowing that there was a chance you could test positive due to being exposed to somebody. So, but are you yeah. thinking about that? The, the, while you're putting on this performance, are you at all thinking about the possibility of testing positive while you're playing? No, but I was aware that it was a possibility. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what, I don't know how to explain it. You know, I had gotten vaccinated shortly before, uh, and I spoke about this too. I had the J and J vaccine appointment done and literally 30 minutes before I got to the clinic is when they, 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 uh, they called them back. They suspended it for the block cloud problem they had for a second. And uh, that's why mine got delayed because then we had the PGA. And I was like, well, I'm not going to take it right before. I'm not going to risk side effects, blah, blah, blah. And that's why I did when I did. And uh, I was I mean, I was in contact with somebody who tested positive. And then throughout that week, I wasn't feeling my best. But I was like, well, it could be side effects. You never know, right? I mean, I didn't have a fever. I just felt like a little cold, right? My throat wasn't feeling great. And uh, I just felt like, you know, 
not a hundred percent. I wasn't feeling my best. Uh, and I even told Adam when we we're starting the third round, like 10 minutes before, I'm like, dude, you know, I'm gonna need a bit, a little bit extra time. I'm not feeling great. And who would have known that as soon as the gun went off, my mind just completely shifted. I forgot about it. I just, you know, the adrenaline took over. And when I finished and they told me, the, inf the, the first shock is like, are you kidding me, right? I'm putting a record performance when they're supposed to have toughened this golf course for nothing low to ever happen again. And I'm here 18 under the three rounds, hoping I could, you know, set some kind of scoring record and be the second back-to-back -back champion and all those things. You know, I, I have my mind set in, on, on, you know, rewriting some history book stuff because that's feeling that good. And, you know, when I saw my trainer come down with a doctor, I knew right then and there, I'm like, okay, I know it's positive. Uh, I just knew, because my trainer, there's no reason why he would come. Now, for people that don't know this, the main reason why they came is because they didn't want me being, you know, physically touching people on the crowd, like high fives or anything, and then, you know, presenting the positive test. But, you know, as much as it could have maybe handled, been, been handled a little bit better, I, I still think they did the right thing. They had to tell me before. I just wish, <laughs> We would have found all this out way earlier, so I wouldn't just put the performance I did on the last few holes and and you know, you know what makes me more mad about all this when it comes to stats? It counts as a WD. I know. Which I have never withdrawn from a tournament, and I won't. Just don't count it as a as a start, because then it will say it says that last year I had twenty two starts, fifteen top tens. It's really twenty one starts, fifteen top tens, or at least do me the decency to give me a top ten, because even one handed I would have. You know, being able to finish in the top ten that week, after what I, you know, with the six shot lead, right? So it, it kind of it, it misses more and more in my mind that I will never WD from a tournament unless I physically can't pick up the club, right? So it's just it almost makes me more mad that if you're gonna force me to withdraw, don't count it as a withdrawal. Don't count it as a start just towards future stats. It almost you know if I'm not gonna get paid, I don't get anything of this. Just somehow change that. Yeah, um, <laughs> but. Getting back to what I was saying, because I was aware that it could have happened, uh, I actually got over it much quicker than people think. Honestly, people think, uh, people I've talked to think I'm probably still mad at it. I'm like, not really. I mean, it's COVID. I'm just happy that everybody in my household was healthy. You know, I've had friends die. I have, you know, really good family friends die from COVID. And it's not a fun, uh, it's not a fun thing to talk about. You know, it's not, it's not a fun virus to be making fun of because people are truly dying out there. Some others may not be getting uh, many side effects, but if you get a bad one, you know, odds of surviving are not very high. And uh, if anything, I was thankful that everybody I was around either didn't get it or if they did, it was mild, especially my wife and my kid. God, I was really worried about that. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that, that my next question was, you know, how you know, your press conference at the U S open was about as thoughtful and as grounded as imaginable. And I'm, it, it, it sounds like it didn't take you long to reach that conclusion. And, and, and I had, you know, just in seeing your reaction off coming off the green Saturday, I, in my mind, it probably would have taken you a couple of days to reach that, you know, kind of more grounded conclusion, but it seems like it was, you were able to get there faster than we may have, uh, may have been interpreting about 20 minutes. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I, uh, I got into the scoring area. I threw a fit in the scoring area because I was pissed. Uh, and then talking about perspective, right? When I thought about my, my, my child and called my wife, uh, I went to that little trailer they have for the people that are in contact tracing. We ordered a couple of Buckeye shakes from the clubhouse. 
And uh, I was having a good old laugh with my caddy. We were laughing, first of all, because we couldn't believe the situation. <laughs> and uh, second of all, because, you know, we were all aware it could happen. And taking it to the bottom point as well is, if we're talking golf-wise, we're a week and a half away from the U.S. Open, and I just put the performance of my life. I should be happy about the state of my game, right? Be happy about that. I guess I, I'm going to have a couple of days to rest at home because I'm not allowed to leave, so try to be happy about that. And then, yeah, I mean, I got over it. It's just once I realized, you know, Kepa's healthy, Kelly's healthy, her parents that have been in contact are healthy. There was no reason for me to really be upset, right? It is what it is. Things happen. You move on. Um, I always choose, a, choose to think on the bright side of things. I'm always going to be positive in every single situation, even though it drives my wife absolutely nuts. Uh, I'm that guy. I'm that guy. Oh, maybe it could happen. This, you know, I'm always the, the positive guy. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, I mean, I got over it. And like I said in that interview as well, I told, like I told, and I told Kelly as well. You know, I'm a believer in karma. And when something happens, I feel like I was owed something. And I told her, I don't know what it's going to be. I don't know if it's going to be uh, me winning something or us getting maybe another great, perfectly healthy pregnancy and child. I don't know, but something good is coming and. As I stood on that tee on Sunday at the U.S. Open, I knew that was the day. So, you know, mm. it's just, it evens out. At the end of the day, it's going to even out. Hmm. And another thing that, correct me if I'm wrong, I, I've not heard you speak on before this year. I think it was in July. You had you had mentioned that you were born with a club foot. And I, one, I, have, have you ever, I guess, have people in golf known that? Or is there any reason why uh, people maybe didn't know that? And, and you know, what, uh, explain to us kind of what you were, you were saying this summer about what, how you learned to swing the club or how that has <laughs> affected your swing. First of all, I'm going to note this because I heard on a podcast, uh, this is back to what we were talking about before. Uh, no, I was not trained to do that interview I did at the US Open, that uh, press conference, I was not told what to say. I actually was sent a spreadsheet of points to uh, to go through and I basically threw it back in my manager's face and I told him I was gonna be myself. So I heard it on a podcast and it's been lingering in my mind. That was 100% me, 100% John Rahm, just being honest. Like I've always have been in interviews, but people have so been caught up on the fact that it's just an angry golfer that they couldn't get past that. And if COVID, see that COVID situation did anything for me, people got to see who the true John is, right? And it's, you know, there's been a shift in popular opinion big time in that case. You know, they got to see who truly, who I truly am, not who they thought I was. Yes, I get angry on the golf course because what I do matters to me, but that's a very small part of who I am as a person. Uh, and I feel like I had to say that because I don't usually say it, but I just... You know, uh, every interview I've done, nobody has ever told me what to say. Uh, it's me 100%. And I'm actually as transparent as I can be in every single one of them. That's why I feel like maybe, I don't know, they're boring to watch or or you just don't believe what I'm saying. But, you know. And you said you're, you know, you're a, a technical geek, but also uh, I hear you say you're a numbers geek. Are you into the, the analytics and uh, are you looking to where you can shave off 0.1 strokes by driving it here instead of here? And I'm, I'm wondering what that process is like for you. Oh, hell no. No? <laughs> God, no. I actually, me and my caddy have fun with the people that use stats and make the strategy based on stats. Uh, it, it's just funny because I've never worked that way, right? I just, my brain has never really I don't make a strategy before I tee off. I get to the tee, look at where the pin position is, look at the conditions we have, and then from there I made a, I make a strategy. That's about it. There is some holes in some cases where I'm like, under no circumstance, I'm gonna hit more than X off the tee here. 
or I won't go for this green unless I have, uh, let's say, four iron or less. You know, there's certain circumstances, but for the most part, much like Sevi, there's no game plan. I get to the tee, see where the pin position is, and basically I trace back, which is the best spot on the fairway for me to attack this pin, and what do I need to hit to put it there? That's, that's pretty much how I think about it. Hmm. What about in between tournaments as far as just looking at what you've done well, what you need to improve on, you know, which ways you're trending in certain areas? Is that something you look at? Yeah, but how long of a period are we talking about, right? Like I'll, I'll usually, if I'm working on something, you need some time to put that into effect, right? You got to be able to try this on tournaments to see if it's working or not. That's kind of where where I'm at, right? Like you got to do it under pressure when it matters most. So that's why, you know, if it's one week to the next, I'm not really going to look into it because it's not enough data to support anything, right? So I usually do it every couple of months, you know, three, four months. If I were to think about next year and, I'm, and if I'm trying to improve something, I'll be working on it and I'll look maybe right before the Masters, see if it's trending the right way or not. Because you need enough events and different weather conditions to make sure you're doing something properly. At least the way I think about it. Some people might look at it every single week and want to know a significant difference, but you know, it all depends on what courses you're playing and what you're playing, right? When you're playing Torre Pines, you're not hitting many wet shots. So your stats can either be really good or really bad, depending on how those three shots went the whole tournament, right? If you're playing an event like Palm Springs, where every other hole you're hitting wedges, you know, it's going to be much more valuable. Next up, a very recent episode, episode 506 with Roy McIlroy. Here's him talking about his 2021 year pretty much in its entirety. So I started out the year, you rewind back to maybe um, October 2020. You know, Bryson's just won the US Open and he did it in a way around Wingfoot that I just thought wasn't possible. Yes, Wingfoot has openings at the front of the greens. You can hit it way up there in the rough, run it up onto the green and... So, you know, other courses, he wouldn't be able to do that. Wingfoot, he did, but... Huge greens there, too. Yeah, so, I'm like, I'm, you know, I've always been a pretty good driver of the golf ball, but I was like, you know, I, you know, maybe a little bit more speed could, could be good for me. And I think as well, you, you see some, you know, you see one of your contemporaries do something like that. And I think for me, like, it's almost like I wanted to prove to myself that I could do it too. And that's probably just my ego sort of getting in the way a little bit. But I, I did it and I got some good speed and I got some good numbers and but at the detriment to the mechanics of my swing trying to get the club you know one of the easiest ways to get more club head speed is to take the club back faster and I started to try to do that but once I started taking it back faster it started to get more and more inside and once the club gets behind me early I'm I'm done like I I don't know what to do from there I've you know historically throughout my career I've taken the club out in front of me or outside and then from there I know what to do the club just sort of drops and that's just a natural pattern for me but once the club gets behind me early the club has to travel such a long way to get back out in front of me and it's like I just can't I can't time it up I can't sync it up Um, so I went into the 2021 season with that pattern of taking it in getting it up and then throwing it out in front of me which is like an over-the-top move that I've never done that so goes two ways. It goes that. all over the place. Um, and I started out in Abu Dhabi managing it and I had a chance to win there. I didn't play a great final round, finished third. And then just progressively over the course of the next couple of months, not working on it and not really focusing on it, it just got into this pattern that seemed really, really hard to get out of. So uh, I sort of pieced it together a little bit. Um, you know, missed the cut in, in L.A., um, 
Harry and I talk about this all the time. Probably my best performance this year was the T6 at the workday at the concession. Mm. I could not find the club face. Really? Oh, it was so bad. And it I just I I I just got it around and pieced it together and um like it's funny, Harry and I always joke about concessions. And if you can finish T6 with no game at that golf course, at that golf course, then you know what can you do if you actually get this right? So, you know, I think I finished like T10 at uh, at Bay Hill, and then I went to the players. And the players is where it started to just you talk about two way misses. Like I missed the tenth fairway at Sawgrass on that first morning, forty yards left. I mean, this ball just came out. I went, where did that come from? Michael wasn't with me at that point. Pete Cowan was 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 there on site and Michael I've, had travel issues. Like Michael's not, had not, difficulty. I mean, no. not prote- I mean, sort of. I mean, he still came over during COVID and whatever. But yeah, it was a little more difficult during COVID to get over and back and everything, and just the the restrictions that were placed on people that were traveling in terms of testing and quarantines and all that sort of stuff. So it was just it was a little more difficult than it than it usually is, um, like it has been for everyone. Um, but as well, like I, at the start of the year, you want to get into tournaments and play and and. Michael and I have always worked great away from the golf course and away from golf tournaments. And then I go there on my own and know what I'm doing. I feel like I've done the work. So my head's clear just to go and play golf. Um, but obviously at that point during the players this year, it wasn't, I was, my head was sort of fried. Um, and I played a really bad round on that Thursday. So I, you know, on Thursday afternoon, I just said to Pete, I've known Pete since I was 13 years old. He was a consultant for the, the Irish national team, um, so I've known Pete for a long, long time, not quite as long as I've known Michael, but he, he's always been a trusted, if I want his opinion on something, he's always been someone that I've trusted to give me a, a good opinion on things. An and, advisor. And, an advisor. Yeah. Michael's talked to him a lot as well. So it's not as if this was a new thing and it wasn't. So we started doing a couple little things at, at the players and I, it was technique. Like I, there was some st- things I needed to really work on. And so after the players, I, I committed to, you know, okay, let's see where this goes with Pete and, and commit to a few months working with him and see if, if I can get a little bit better. And, um, and Michael was totally okay with that. Like he, he was like, Roy, I'm always going to be here for you. You know, if it, if it doesn't work out, I'm more than happy to come back. And so it was, it was very, very, um, everything was on good terms. So I worked with Pete and I, I, I got a lot, you know, I, I, I learned a lot. I thought my iron play got a lot better. My wedge game got better. He just wanted to try to, you know, I was getting very flippy at impact. So just trying to contr- stabilize the club face through impact and just get the consistency of the ball flight a bit better. Um, and then I go to Quail Hollow and I win, but I, you know, I didn't necessarily win Quail Hollow with my ball striking. I potted really, really well that week. Um, and you could say the same thing about the CJ Cup in Vegas. I putted really well that week, and those two wins were to do with my putter more than my ball striking. But you know, I thought I was at least making um, a little bit of progress. And then you know, going into the U.S. Open, I felt like was sort of felt like I'd hit a sweet spot with Pete in terms of okay, everything feels good, hitting the shots I want to hit. Um, and then I, you know, the the result followed. It's I think as everyone in golf knows, you can you can feel really good on the range and hit the shots. And then once you get on the course, it's a different animal. Sometimes it it just takes a while to trust what you're trying to do. So, um, so that was a sort of journey. And then it got to the point where in the summer, I felt like every time I played a bad round or had a bad shot, it was just all technique. 
So then I just got wrapped up in my head about technique and just started to think about my swing. And then you're playing golf swing, not golf. A hundred percent sort of freed myself up a little bit more. So like Scottish open, Irish open, Scottish open, open was very, you know, it was more golf swing and I didn't, you know, I didn't allow myself to play with the freedom that I, that you need to play with to win golf tournaments. And I went to the Olympics and tried to play with a bit more freedom and played a bit better there, played a bit better in Memphis, but then, you know, you still need to, there's, there's something to do with playing with freedom and, and seeing shots and all that, but you still need to have somewhat of a technique to, to match up, to be able to make sure that everything's coming out consistently. So I go into the FedEx cup playoffs, play. Okay. Finished fourth at Caves Valley. You know, I didn't play great at Liberty, played okay at the tour championship. And then Ryder cup was just a, I think when I got into this mindset of like, when I got under pressure and got under the gun, especially at somewhere that's as pressure packed as Ryder cup, I, I just reverted back to technique because it's all I was thinking about for the last few months. And like, I played horrifically the first two days. I mean, so bad. Uh, and it was even to the fact where, you know, Harry said this to me, he's like, you're not even getting into your chip shots and your putts. Cause you're still thinking about the swing you made to get yourself here. You're not even just like forgetting about it, hitting a good chip, hitting a good putt. You're like, you're still thinking about the swing you just made. And it just, it just got to the point where I needed to completely free myself of all technical thought. And I sort of did that on the Saturday night. I said, right, I'm just going to go out and play the team. And Podrick put a lot of faith in me to go out number one. I hadn't won a match going out number one for the last two times. So I went out and I, I beat Xander and I played the best golf of the week. And I just, for me anyway... And I just, that was a huge realization. And I think the emotion that I showed at the end was was to do with the Ryder Cup and to do with how emotionally charged that week is, being with your teammates and playing all for one thing. And it's such an authentic event. But I think the tears were also me realizing like, you know, not what have I been doing for the last six months because I still feel like I made some progress. But, you know, why did I just, I need to just get out of my own way. And that was the realization. And then, you know, go to Vegas and like, I didn't know I was going to win in Vegas. I just wanted to go there and free myself up. And there you go. Mm -hmm. I win. Next up, Mike Wan, episode 469, back on the podcast now in his capacity as the CEO of the USGA, talking about the distance issues in the game. I'll ask this question to kind of kick off this topic. Is there a distance issue in golf? You know, I'm proud of you, Chris. You waited 16 minutes. So that's, um, <laughs> you, you win the over under bet. I would have said within five. You know, I think the bottom bottom line when it comes to distance is the question is, should we be concerned, you know, about the venues that support golfers uh, in the next 50 to 100 years? I don't think anybody wakes up today and worries about their golf course 50 or 100 years from now. That's our job. You know, that's our job. That's our job together with the RNA. Um, I don't think there's any way you could not have concerns about the highest level of the game and kind of what's happening to par fives and 480 yard par fours still being a driver and a wedge. And so if I think if you just turned a blind eye to that and say, well, it's exciting and everybody loves the long ball, which is true. And I, I fit into those categories as well. At the same time, you got to make sure that everybody loves the long ball doesn't turn into 50 years from now. Your kids have dramatically fewer places to play because you just the, the game couldn't sustain the game. So I've said this many times, you know, I, I'm not here to preserve golf. I mean, that's not my, I mean, croquet is preserved and there's a reason why nobody wants to play it anymore because it's exactly what it was 200 years from now. And that's great. It's, it's really got protected. So I'm not afraid of changing the game. I love the modernization rules of the game that came out. I love the fact that championships keep growing and making a bigger social impact than what they did, you know, just 10 years ago. Um, so to me, you know, games either, games either progress 
or, or they die. And, it, and so when you talk about progressing, one of the things you have to ask yourself is you have the role, Mike, um, as does Martin. And one of those roles is you got to be the traffic cop. What's the speed limit by which we can make sure that this game can survive for the next 50 years? I don't have the answer to that yet, but I'm also not going to shy away from that responsibility. Next up, episode 500 with Tony Jacklin. This is this was what truly one of my favorites of the year. This was a longer clip here telling some stories, some Arnold Palmer stories. Who doesn't love Arnold Palmer stories? So episode 500 with Tony Jacklin. Well, as long as we're on Ryder Cups from the past, I needed you to take us to 1967, which I believe was your first Ryder Cup, uh, going up in a plane with Arnold Palmer at the 1967 Ryder Cup. Tell us about that. Well, he just bought a new Learjet, and uh, we were in Houston at uh, Champions Club, the the club that uh, Jimmy DeMerit and uh, Jackie Burke built and owned, and we were hitting balls on the range, and he's done. Arnold just gets finished. Okay, who wants to come for a ride? You know, and like a schmuck, I put my hand up and... (laughs) George Will, a Scottish teammate of mine, was next to me, and he, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm up for it. And uh, Bobby Halsell, he was the pro at Royal Birkdale. He was over there with the group, and, uh, and Jimmy Demerit. He was uh, he was an aviator himself. So we all go off. It's only around the corner of the airport, and uh, we g- climb into this. Uh, so it wasn't big, you know, Lears are not very big, you can't stand up in them. Mm-hmm. And uh, But it was pretty luxurious and off we went. And before we knew where we were, we were sort of going sedately over the golf course and you could see where we'd been half an hour before hitting balls and there were still some of the guys out there. And you could recognise their swings, we were, <laughs> we were pretty low in this thing. And I thought, this is lovely. And all of a sudden, we, he turns this thing around and we go, we're going flat out at about 500 feet, you know, and, and everything's flashing by like it. And then he pulls it back and we're going straight up and spinning. And, t- and he's got this thing turning around. And I'm looking d- d- up the aisle towards well, the pilot because he's up there, Arnold is with his... Uh, pilot Daryl Walsh was his pilot, and he's laughing his ass. He's la- he's roaring, laughing. You know, looking back at us. George will peed his pants. <laughs> I mean, it it was horrendous. It literally peed his. This is not. Oh, no, no, yeah, no, no, like no, no. No, he had light grey trousers on that were dark grey around the crotch <laughs> area, and uh, it was unbelievable. Anyway, I don't do too well. Uh, you know, on roller coasters and things like that. But I was so glad, glad to get down in one piece for a start. And we got, we went back to the club uh, after, and there was all hell let loose. I mean, it was all the, the aviation people were on the phone. Daryl, his pilot, was on the phone. Yes, to you know, apologize. And Arnold, to his eternal credit, he went and grabbed the phone off Daryl and uh, he was taking, he took the rap, you know, for, for what he did, because he knew if Daryl lost the license, he was screwed. And uh, and Demerit wrote a groveling letter, and anyway, it was pretty, for a 23-year-old making his Ryder Cup debut, it was something to see the king having to grovel <laughs> like he, he, he did, but... Uh, 
how the hell he got away with that, I'll never know. I, I, I know I don't want it to, to ever happen again. It was um, a good one-time experience. It was remarkable, and and of course Hogan was the American captain that year. He was, um, and I think it's fair to say that was no love lost between Arnold and and, and Hogan. You know, What's the, the origin of that? I've always heard that. Yeah, I, really you know, I think it's a respect thing. It was like. Uh, you know, Hogan never minded putting people down. Like back in those days, you could choose what ball you played. This this would be interesting for some of the younger people, but the British ball was 1.62 in diameter and the American ball was 1.68. And I think I'm right in saying that they weighed the same in ounces as they measured. I, I wouldn't be certain about that bit. But you got choice whether you played a small ball or the big ball. That was when when you played in Scotland for the Open, you could choose. But in America, it was always you know it had been the big ball. And I think in those days, you got the choice. I think I'm right. And and uh, Arnold made an inquiry to Hogan as to what ball. You know, they were recommending playing. Hogan says, "Who said you're playing?" You know, like that's the kind of put down. He 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 didn't mind, uh, and he would, you know, he would enjoy that. I heard he always referred to him as Palmer too, which was kind of a little put down. It was one of the one of the really funny things that week uh, for me. Again, twenty three years old, and there was. American players, Johnny Pott was on the team, Gabriel, God love him, he became a dear friend. Uh, but they were scared to death of Hogan coming out and looking at practice. Oh, God, I hope he doesn't come and look at me. You know, because he was, you know, Hogan was it. Yeah. I mean, I'm saying, I'm, I never, he was perfection. I never saw anything like it. I never saw anything better, and I got to play with him a couple of years after that. And of course, he didn't look at the where the ball was. He was looking at the player. And of course, in Gay's case, I mean, he had that bloody corkscrew swing. Uh, you know, he knew his his swing was anything but perfect. You know, he, he was he was he was digging a living out of this game, d- despite the fact that he had that agricultural kind of swing. And uh, he he. he he didn't want to perform much in front of Mr. Hogan. It was, it was, it was funny. It was really funny at the time. So tell me about what what's it like playing with uh, with Arnold Palmer in a Ryder Cup? And I don't know if this is the same time to ask about you, the story you tell in the book about playing the Canadian Open with him and Jack as well. Yeah, no, it's that, well, it was that year. Yeah. It was the same year. So the Canadian Open had been a little earlier. Uh, we're now in September, and and Canada was sort of in midsummer. We're in Montreal, and of course, in those days, they only televised the last three holes. Um, actually, a lot happened that year. You know, I actually did the first hole one ever televised mm-hmm. in '67 as well, playing, winning the Dunlop Masters at Royal St George's. So within weeks, we're in at the Canadian Open, and. Uh, Andrew and Palmer and Nicholas and the last round and the 16th hole, the first hole that they're televising was a 265-yard par four. And 
Arnold's got the tea, and at the end of the tea, there's one of these big old grey, old-fashioned uh, cameras, TV cameras. And Arnold's goes to tee the ball up, and he said, Jack comes up behind me, and he says, watch him when the red light goes on. And so I'm watching this, and all of a sudden, you know, the red light, bing, he knows he's up, he's on. And he starts giving it the snorts and the, you know, the shirts out of the back already, and he, he rips into this driver, and 265 was about, you know, pretty much the limit for then with that old Bellata ball and stuff. And he gave it that, you know, that Palmer... Uh, helicopter finish. Helicopter spin at the end. And, of course, ball goes right in the middle of the green, you know, and another couple of, uh, <laughs> you know, and uh, and I just smiled at Jack, you know, and that was it. You know, it was... Uh, it was the John Wayne bit, if you like, you know. I mean, that's why that's what made him so great, and that's why everybody loved him. It was uh, something I'll never forget. If you're looking for a last-minute gift to bring home for the holidays, look no further than Elijah Craig. Elijah Craig's signature warm spice and subtle smoke flavor has earned it a reputation for being one of the best small-batch bourbons available. It's exceptionally smooth, well-balanced. It's great neat. It's on the rocks or an old-fashioned. I got a confession to make. I've been making so many Elijah Craig old-fashions. I bought one of those online those smoker kit things or whatever. I hope I don't burn our house down, but I'm hoping to finally uh, master the art of the smoked old-fashioned. You'll probably probably see me be posting about that on my Instagram if I actually manage to, to pull it off. All you need is a little bit of sugar to enhance the sweetness, some bitters, some bitters to bring out the spice. Whether you're new to the world of whiskey or if you're an avid fan, you can't go wrong with a bottle of award-winning Elijah Craig. Pick up a few bottles today. Ring in the new year with this award-winning bourbon. There's greatness within. No Laying Up is brought to you by Elijah Craig Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey, Bardstown, Kentucky, 47% alcohol by volume. Elijah Craig reminds you to think wisely and drink wisely. Next up, Justin Thomas, episode 496, talking about Tiger Woods. This sounds even uh, this is even more fun to listen back on after watching what we saw this past weekend at the PNC Championship. What is the latest with Tiger? Have you seen much of him since the accident? I'm actually kind of kind of not stunned, but you know he's been as off the radar as much as he has, and in terms of buzz and interest from golf fans, it seems like it's kind of surprising. What's what's your how has this changed your guys' relationship, or what what do you see of him? No, it's good. I mean, I, I'd say I. I go over and see him two or three times a week when I'm home just wow. go go more so to let our dogs play and hang out and he wears our pup out but um no I mean it, yeah he's doing well I mean especially all things considered I think he's uh I mean he's it's groundhog day every day is the exact same thing for him but at least he's able to you know pictures are going around of him at Charlie's tournament and you know Sam's soccer tournaments here and there so he's able to be you know a dad somewhat again which is most important you know he, he's still his sarcastic asshole self so nothing's changed there so i'm glad to see that he's uh he's still chipper as always i have long called for golf fans to just you know give the golf a break when it comes to tiger but they're going to kill me if i don't ask does golf enter the does golf enter the conversation as to what what the future that might be close near term or short term at all i don't know i mean i know that he's going to try i just i i don't see i don't see him ever playing if he can't play well, you know, I, I, he doesn't strike me as a guy that's like, you know, he's played at home and he, he's shooting a bunch of 75 and 76s and he's like, all right, I'm going to go give Augusta a try this yeah. year. Like, that's just not really going to be him. At least, at least to my understanding or, or from what I know of him, you know, he's, 
I think he knows that you know there's a there's a pretty good chance that that was kind of that might be the last chance he really ever had of before that of of kind of making another run. But at the same time, I know how determined he is, and I know he's going to want to at least try to to give something again. I mean, obviously, I hope he does, but um, at the same time, I like I said, kind of after the accident, as long as he can be a dad and be normal with that again, that's the number one priority, and and the rest is a bonus. I would say I've officially learned my lesson, and I will. I just won't do it again. Won't ever call him done. Won't do it. Yeah, uh, I, I, uh, I, yeah. I, I, it it can be a point oh oh one, whatever it might be. But gosh, it was definitely point oh oh one at certain times when it came to the back, and twenty nineteen happened. So that's all. I'll, but I'm with you there. It's kind of like, dude, I, you've given us golf fans in terms of you know just speaking for them. You've given us a lifetime, a career's worth of memories, and I, you don't know the golf fans anything else. If if you do it for yourself, then uh, that's that's a different thing. But for sure, yeah. yeah. I mean, even if it's something like, you know, when he's feeling good again, he just goes and rides around with Charlie at the father son. You know, it's just something to where he he wants to be a dad and and enjoy those moments with him and and hopefully watch him. You know, but potentially be playing and go watch Sam and her soccer tournaments or she's such a, you know an athlete and how smart she is to be a part of her life and it's just that's what he wants to do and it's um you know he, he's got his competitive side like you said is not going to let him just hang it up without at least giving it a try at some point I'm sure next up episode 460 with Jose Maria Olafabo we talked a lot about Sevi on this podcast this past year. No better uh, no better perspective on that from somebody, from uh, one of his best friends. Episode 460, Jose Maria Olafabo. You know, I always ask people who their role model was. You know, I hear Sevi, 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 Sevi from people all over the world. You know, he was a great friend of yours, as we talked about. But why, why would you say that is? What is it about him that, you know, for a younger generation that didn't get to experience that? How would you describe that? He was the way he played the game. I mean, he was he was fearless on on the golf course. He uh, he he created shots. Uh, uh, he he was able to see shots. He was able to execute shots that the rest of us wouldn't even dream of. Uh, he could see shots from the middle of the trees. He could see spaces where no one else would see. He could try to hit balls, uh, shots that had to go within a square foot between branches and leaves and, and then, you know, try to turn the ball 30 yards or left or right and, and still, uh, you know, execute the shots. Uh, he, he, he would never give up. He would always give his best, uh, regardless, again, regardless of how well he would hit the shots or, or, or strike the ball. Uh, at the end of the day, people knew that sooner or later, in a regular 18-hole round, they were going to witness, you know, three, four shots or five or even more uh, that would be worth uh, to be there to see. You know, I see, I see people that, you know, uh, go and follow Sevi and said, well, it was worth to go and follow you 18 holes just to see those two shots that you hit from the trees or that chip or that bunker shot or whatever. He had such uh, uh, skills, such a touch around the greens. And his character, uh, you know, he was, he was very likable. He didn't hide any emotions on the golf course. And I think that that made him uh, uh, really attractive to to people, to crowds, to to fans. Next up, episode 461 with Mark Brody talking about strokes gained. 
If you don't mind explaining the concept of strokes gain, both for myself and uh, any listeners out there that may not be 100% familiar. Well, the short phrase to summarize strokes gained is it's progress to the whole measured in strokes. And I think the best way to understand that is, is with an example. If you're on the tee on a difficult par four, the average strokes to hole out might be 4.2 for this 450 yard hole. So instead of thinking of yourself as being 450 yards away, think of yourself as being 4.2 strokes away from the hole. And so an average swing, an average uh, you know, shot, would move you one stroke closer to the hole. So you take one swing off the tee, and if you get to 3.2 strokes away from the hole, you're doing average. If you hit a short drive off into the rough, you're you're not going to be 3.2, you might be 3.5 strokes away, and that's three-tenths of a stroke worse than average, or your strokes gained is minus 0.3, or you pipe a drive 300 yards down the middle of the fairway, then you start off 4.2 strokes away from the hole, and after that you might only be three strokes away from the hole. So in one swing, you've gotten 1.2 strokes closer, which means your strokes gained is, is 0.2. So in order to measure strokes gained, it's progress to the hole measured relative to a benchmark, which is usually the PGA Tour benchmark, but, but if you're an amateur golfer, it could be a scratch benchmark or it could be a benchmark for an 80 golfer. And it just quantifies what we know and what we see, whether it's a good shot or a bad shot, but it, it quantifies it in terms of these fractional gains and losses. Hmm. I think things really clicked for me uh, in the last year and a half or so. I've gotten to play a decent amount of golf with many tour professionals, and I find myself in matches with them. And, you know, I'll hit a good drive down the fairway, and they will hit one 20 to 25 yards further than me and in a better angle. And learning how to keep up with them when they have that advantage on me has been maybe the best lesson to learn in strokes gained, right? If you're just out there playing by yourself, you hit a great drive right down the middle of the fairway, you might, you know, you don't have that great shot to compare it to, you know, as to what a true gain off the tee uh, looks like. And I, I don't know, that that was kind of a, a light bulb moment that went off for me. But one, th one thing I wanted to ask, and I don't know this, when I'm watching TV, when I'm watching golf on TV, what are some examples of perfectly average shots? Shots that gain zero strokes, lose zero strokes. Let's say, you know, it could be a, an example of a tee shot, a shot from 150, a shot from 100 yards. What, are, what would you say the benchmark is for a lot of the shots that we see on TV? Roughly speaking, uh, a shot from 150 yards in the fairway, if a, if a pro puts it to 23 feet, that's about average. And... Some people think that's that's horrible. It's like no, no, they're 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 much better than that. And they said no, no, they're not. <laughs> From 200 yards, if they put it to 30 feet, that's that's an average an average shot. There's a misconception that you know these pros are so good that from 100 yards they're always within 10 feet, and it's just not not true. So strokes gained, I think, helps you get some intuition about how good are good shots and how how bad are bad shots and it, it also goes the other way that you could be uh, an amateur golfer and you're 60 yards away in the fairway and a pin is cut on the right side of the green and you miss by about 10 feet to the right and you put it into the sand you say well i only missed by 10 feet right of my target 
but dumping that 60-yard shot from the fairway into the sand, you're losing about three-quarters of a stroke. And strokes gain really helps uh, you to, I think, you know, pay more respect to hazards. Next up is Tom Whitney from episode 465, talking about his interesting background and how he made his way to the Corn Ferry Tour. 2010 is when I graduated. Um, that season, I'd, I'd actually cracked the top 25 in the individual rankings on Golf Week or Golf Stat or whatever that is. So that was when I kind of realized that, okay, I'm going to eventually try full-time golf as a, as a career path. Now, when you graduate from the academy, you also owe a number of years uh, service back. That's not a bad thing. I mean, you, you graduate debt-free from the academy and then you have a guaranteed job for five years. To me, that's pretty darn cool. I graduated in May of 2010, as, uh, and, and my specialty was a nuclear missile operator. So I headed out to training in Santa Barbara, California, and learned everything about the uh, Minuteman Three weapon system, and what we're in charge of is um, sending the launch command if the president gives us the order. And obviously, to this date, we've never had to do that from one of our one of our silos. But then the other day-to-day stuff is routine tests, exercises, routine maintenance. We have unexpected maintenance. We have security uh, security alarms that go off, whether it's from whether it's from earthquakes across the world. I, I mean, I, I kid you not. When when they have those seven point earthquakes uh, over out in in Japan and Indonesia and all that, like our vibration sensors on our missiles go off because of the vibrations. Really? So yeah, so we can get an alarm and and we'll see it on all. We'll see the reading on all of our missiles. You can turn on the news and then you'll see. Oh, yep, there is a seven point earthquake halfway around the world. Is that a big sigh <laughs> of relief when you see the earthquake? Then is that, or you know, does it ever feel routine at that point, or does everyone feel like, okay, this is it, this is it? No, it's pretty routine yeah. because, yeah, I mean, thank God that you know we've we haven't had to offensively use these missiles ever. Our, our silos have never been attacked. You know, as much responsibility as there is in this job, um, it is pretty routine. Because if things were to escalate, there, there are a lot of um, levels you have to go through to do so. So it's not like in a second that you're going to be launching a missile and, and you didn't know about it. Next up, episode 463 with Peter Costas talking about the evolution of professional golf, evolution of equipment and whatnot. Uh, again, episode 463, golf swings. How would golf swings be different? How, how, would, the, how would that have changed the game when we're not in this post you know, Pro V1 equipment boom. Do you see what I'm getting at? Yeah, I, I do, but I, I don't think I don't think the golf swing would have changed just because of TrackMan or launch monitors. Some individual players may have changed certain things in their swings, but and listen, this is something I've studied for 50 years. The evolution of the golf swing throughout time and until around 1990-95, it evolved because of changes in golf course design and golf course condition that the players faced and equipment changes. Now under equipment, you can go all the way back to the 1800s where guys played in, in boots and tweed suits and had to bend their left arm. 
they had no range of motion because their clothing was so restrictive to hickory shafts, to steel shafts, to graphite shafts, you know, to featheries, to gutta percha, to balata, to Pro V1. All of these things interacted, right? Everybody's golf swing evolved basically because golf course design back in the day, we just saw it at, uh, at Royal St. George's, you play a lot on the ground, right? Mm-hmm. Not so much up in the air because of the wind and, and so on and so forth. Then, then along comes architecture changes where Trent Jones and others put bunkers in, in front of greens. And now you had to start putting the ball up in the air. And so along comes Jack Nicklaus. Up until then, most players had a low trajectory, low launch, uh, high spin trajectory to, to keep the ball down out of the wind and so on and so forth. We had the, the 1.62 ball in the rest of the world and the 1.68 ball in America. You can go back and say part of the reason why Europeans and, and worldwide golfers have caught up to American golfers in terms of production as a player is because they got rid of that small ball. And they are all forced to play the big ball, and they had to change their golf swings accordingly. That's really where the evolution of the golf swing took place. Equipment changes, golf course condition, and golf course design changes. And then along comes Tiger. I go, I circle back to the beginning. Now, there were some guys back in the day like Frank Strafacci, who is the grandfather of our current U.S. amateur champion, right? And, and he would carry weights around, and he was one of the first ones to actually lift weights and play golf. Uh, Mike Austin was another guy, big, big, long hitter. Uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't mainstream until Tiger came along, and people started seeing what Tiger could do with a golf club and a golf ball and his workout ethic, and all of a sudden, fitness became – it came to the forefront in preparation for a golf tournament. And so – now the golf swing changed again because fitness changed the body. So you, you can say that your body is part of your equipment, I, I suppose, but, but fitness and, and strengthening and, and becoming more flexible and better aerobic conditioning to keep your heart rate down and all of those things, Tiger brought along. And, and um, as a consequence, you know, guys were going to the gym at six o'clock at night rather than going to the bar. And that's where the evolution of the golf swing has taken place and is now set up for what we, we have in the in the 2020s. Virtually everybody works out. Everybody's got custom made equipment. Now they got launch monitors to to maximize that equipment and make sure it's fit correctly for them. And it's becoming more science and less art. Is there is there more room for science in golf? Like how much more optimized and how much further can can things get? It, it, you know, whenever you're in the current, it always feels like you're up against the cutting edge of technology and that it can't get much better or much deeper. But do you see it? Just, I mean, I don't see it stopping, but how much further can things get? I, I don't know that they can get much further along. I, I do really think that we're up against the edge, except for the fact that now what's happening, and, and this is – this is one of the uh, untold secrets about the evolution of our current equipment in terms of golf clubs in the early 90s, 80s. I mean, it was rare when you saw a Nick Faldo, who is six foot four, come along and, and play and play well. Greg Norman was, I don't know what he was, six one, six feet. Most of the players were six feet or less. Now you're hard pressed to find anybody that's not 
six feet or over. And last week in the open, we had a we had a, a, a guy six foot nine, right? So the equipment is so much lighter, so much stronger that bigger people can be fit correctly to be able to play golf properly. Back in the day, you had George Archer, right? Six foot five. But the clubs, the steel shafts were so heavy, you couldn't make them too long because they were unwieldy and you, you couldn't control them. So he had a scrunch six foot five down into five foot nine. And as a consequence, he tore up his body. I don't know how many surgeries he had over the course of his career, but it had to be in double numbers for sure. Now you got guys six four, six five, six seven, setting up to a guy to a golf ball and looking just like a guy that's five ten. So that's where I, I think bigger, stronger, faster is going to come from the athletes who are playing golf now because the equipment allows for that. So if you got bigger, stronger, faster players playing your sport, you can't blame the golf ball for it going farther. You know, you got a you got an engine with with a thousand horsepower instead of an engine with three hundred and fifty horsepower. Next up, episode 467 with Harris English. I hate calling an episode surprising, but man, he really kind of surprised me in this episode. Just a, a fantastic interview. Episode 467 with Harris English. What did you hear out there, and what, what, what's, the, uh, what's the atmosphere like? Yeah, I, I do enjoy playing with Bryson first off. I really enjoy seeing the shots he can, he can pull off and, and just how he plays golf because it's so much different than the way I play, play golf. His thought process is, is so much different. So I, I enjoy seeing that part of it. Um, but it, it has been a little bit of a circus. Um, it, it was a little bit of a circus in Memphis. If people don't like following Bryson, if they don't like the way he is, then don't, then don't follow him. Don't what, what I don't like is people following Bryson and heckling him, trying to mess him up. Like that's, that's where this whole golf gambling thing can get a little dicey is if, if a guy is, betting against Bryson, he's going to go out there and try to mess him up the whole day. And yeah. that's not that fair, but I mean, I, I get it. I, I get that. Yes. He has probably put someone on, on this himself. He he's, he's said some things that he shouldn't have said, but it, it's just tough. He's in a tough spot right now. I, I wish he would, he would come to the media and kind of tell him and, and be honest with what he's going through and it affects him. I, mean, I didn't like that he blew off the media last week. I, I, I don't think that helps him a lot. Um, but I, I wish I wish him and Brooks would put this to bed and they can let it go. And then the fans can let it go and, and get back to golf fans being golf fans and enjoying golf and pulling for guys and not having this heckling, this bullying going on that's going on because it sucks. And it's uh, it's a little bit distracting, obviously, playing with him as well. I mean, you, you feel bad for him. And it shouldn't be like that. Next up, episode 478, Bones back on talking Ryder Cup and talking Tiger. What's it like clubbing a guy at a Ryder Cup? Is there just an automatic adrenaline adjustment you have to make right from the get-go? It's a great question because certainly I, I worked almost my entire caddy career for Phil, and he was a massive adrenaline guy. So when he got into these really big spots, whether it's the Masters of the Ryder Cup, he all of a sudden would just start hitting the ball much further than he normally would with his irons. Uh, but, but from, you know, what I've seen now over the years, not everybody's like that. You know, Tiger's certainly not. I was, I was blown away one year where I, I read a, uh, a, an interview that Tiger did one year when he hit an incredible shot into 15 at the masters. Where he basically said, you know, 
you know, I hit a five iron. It was 222 yards down the hill. And I knew it was a five iron because I had the exact same yardage in a practice round. And I thought to myself, isn't that fascinating? So, you know, it's Tiger basically telling us he hits the ball exactly the same distance on Sunday of the Masters as he did in the Tuesday or Wednesday practice round. And, I, I you know, everybody's different. And, uh, again, certainly for Phil, he was as jacked up as, uh, as he could ever possibly be. And, you know, there's some great stories about when he played with Keegan at that 2012, you know, Ryder Cup. Keegan was the same way where literally they got on the third or fourth hole one day in a match. And Phil told Keegan – in front of the guys we were playing against, hey, man, wait for the green to clear on this par four because I think you can drive it on the green. And it was like, you know, probably a 390-yard par four. And I thought, well, that was, you know, maybe Phil just kind of trying to get in the other guy's heads a little bit. And to Phil's credit, he got up there. He was so jacked up. He drove it in the green side bunker. They got up and down, made birdie, and won the hole. So, again, you get these guys where you just get this, you know, adrenaline and energy pumping through them. And, all of a sudden, it's a completely different animal in terms of what you're dealing with as a caddy. Next up, another Bones clip from episode 478, talking about why some players thrive in the Ryder Cup. Players put too much pressure on themselves. I, I'm trying really hard to understand it. I don't think I can get all the way there where, you know, if I'm watching Dustin Johnson and Ian Poulter tee it up in the same tournament, the very few golf courses am I choosing Poulter over DJ on, but like if they're playing head-to-head match play, I feel totally different about it, and I just can't put my finger on why. For somebody that's seen it up close and personal, why would why would you say that is? Uh, I would say it's the affinity for the big stage. I mean, certainly, you know, in the Ryder Cup, you're playing 80% of your matches if you play all five with a partner. And, and in my opinion, there have been some world-class players over the years that haven't necessarily got it done to the degree they should uh, in stroke play events, but play like absolute world beaters at the Ryder Cup because they've got a guy over there that has their back that can certainly back them up, you know, in, in the best ball portion of things, but an alternate shot can kind of put their arm around them and say, that's okay, let's get him on the next hole. I, I think for some guys that that really, really plays into this. I think aggression is a big part of it. I, I think that, you know, some guys really, you know, we all hear these discussions on television about what you're aiming at and the this and the that. And, you know, let's take it at that, you know, NBC sign behind the, the green. You know, these guys, you know, have this opportunity at the Ryder Cup far more so to play right at the flag. And I think that suits some guys, again, better than others. I mean, I always thought that, you know, Tiger, even though his Ryder Cup record isn't what he would want it to be, you know, he was a much more aggressive player. Than, uh, than people, you know, probably gave him credit for in terms of going out there, getting it done and, you know, getting his hands on the trophy. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's certainly different. But but I also think, you know, one thing about about match play is it's 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 much more of a big stage mentality. And you get a guy like Poulter, obviously, and, and he he loves the attention. He knows he's on worldwide television, he knows if he knocks in this 15 footer, everybody's going to go berserk. And he's that much likely that much more likely to do it as a result. And some guys, you know, shrink a little bit at the thought of that stuff. Next up, episode 484 with Scotty Scheffler talking about his singles match against John Rahm. What was the, the thought process between you going out fourth? Is that something that was discussed? Uh, and what's your reaction when you see you draw world number one? I mean, we, we none of us were very involved in what order and who would go where with the captains. I think they kind of had an idea of what they wanted to do, and they kind of just went with it. You know, we we trusted the captains with all the pairings and matchups and whatnot and kind of just did what we were told for the most part. I mean, they, they knew what they wanted to do, and it worked out well, and there was no reason for us to change that going into Sunday. Um, 
all the guys were pretty excited that that I got the ROM pairing. Um, you know, he had a great week leading up to then, but I was very excited to go out and play him. It's it's nice. I like the challenge of playing ROM just because he's such a wonderful player, you know, major champion, um, and I enjoyed the challenge. Did you feel the value of rest at all in that matchup? I mean, you played you played two matches leading up to that. He played four. And on paper, it just looked like the perfect possible situation for the U.S. team. Yeah, I mean, there is something to getting that proper rest. But at the same time, I think, you know, a lot of us were worn out anyways. It's, it's mentally draining, especially playing in front of the home crowd. Like, my heart was racing just watching the guys anyways. And so... Even those, even those times where I wasn't playing, I was still, you know, we showed up at the first tee to watch, we, and we watched the rest of the matches. And, you know, sometimes the waiting game is just as tough as going out there and playing. So I wouldn't say there's too much to it. Rom seemed pretty fresh on Sunday, as well as, you know, DJ did, having played all five matches. Well, it stuck out to me in the press conference afterward how, how much your team wanted to emphasize how much it meant to them that you went up out there and, and put up that kind of lead early on. What what did that mean? What did that mean to you to hear hear your team kind of uh, go out of their way to 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 point that out in the press conference? Yeah, I mean that that meant a lot to me. Like I said, the the night before, the guys were excited. I mean, we were I was sitting in the physio room getting you know our work done. It was like eight thirty at night when the pairings finally came out, and I think DJ showed me the pairing, and and then my wife came running in the room, and she thought it was really fun that I was playing Rom as well. I think. You know, he had had such a good week up to that point. I think we all wanted a little piece of him on Sunday just because he had gotten the better of us for the first four matches, basically. I think, what were they, 3-0-1 going into that match, going into Sunday? And I think that was when Bryson and I halved with him and Tyrrell on Friday afternoon. And so I thought it was good momentum for the team. You don't ever want to look up at the leaderboard and see a bunch of blue, especially when we have that big of a lead. And when I went out, it didn't feel like there was a ton of red on the board and so for me to kind of jump out there and get up on rom early i'm sure it was a big boost for the team i i know jordan told me that him and Bog were in there watching getting very excited just watching me make some birdies on him and i was just glad it gave the team some momentum next up episode 488 with dr bob rotella man i could have talked to this guy for hours and hours he basically gives you uh, a lesson within this that would probably cost us a lot of money and he gave it gave it away to all the listeners for free episode 488 dr bob rotella what about even going even further down the ring to things like the yips? I'm wondering if you've worked with, with people specifically on yip-like things. What What is actually happening happening when it comes to somebody having the yips on chipping, putting, anything like that? Uh, even even other sports, I think you've worked with people on this. Uh, what What's the coaching like there? Is it any different than any of the concepts we've talked about to this point? Well, People make up all kinds of stuff about the yips. They love to make it sound scientific and complicated, and they love to use big words. The bottom line is when you have the yips, your head's in a bad place. I mean, you're thinking about missing, or you're thinking about your hands, or you're thinking about having the yips. I mean, you're kind of predicting it to your brain. That means, come on, make my hands shake because I want them to. The brain just takes what you get. If all you're doing is thinking about where you want it to go, you're not going to have the yips. But some people don't want to acknowledge that their brain is caving in to those kinds of thoughts. And it usually, you know, maybe you had a bad experience. I'm not denying that. At some point, you have to get past it. And, you know, with putting, I would say today, we've come up with so many different grips. And then I would say probably the arm lock 
you know, um, and people can argue over it being legal or whatever. But I mean, it's probably solved a lot of putting problems and a whole lot of different grips have. Um, I don't see as many people yipping with their putters today as I did 20 years ago. I see a lot more people yipping with pitching as they've cut the turf tighter and tighter. You still see some people with it, with the driver. But I mean, it basically, if you got to get your mind empty and quiet. And it's when you're yipping, you're, it's very busy and it's filled with really bad thoughts, either about the outcome or about your body not functioning. Now, are there people, like certainly with people after 50, I mean, there's a lot of people on various medications that might be adding to it. There might be people drinking way too much coffee or Mountain Dew or whatever. Um, but by and large, um, it's you've got to get people to be honest and you've got to get a really good mental routine. So a lot of people have a physical routine hoping it will get your mind in the right place and it doesn't. So you, you have to get a really good mental process that that you that's predictable before the round starts. Um, but I mean, I I can't say as I spend the majority of my time, I, I, I just as soon never even talk about the yips. I think there's way too much conversation about it. It ought to be like they like to present the yips like it's something that owns me instead of I'm thinking poorly right now about my putting or my pitching right now. I, you know, whether it's because you made it too complicated technically or because you're worried about the turf or the lie. And, you know, I call it a lot of golf junk that you hear and you have to get rid of all that golf junk and just see the shot. Um, Cause little kids can do it. It's a, I mean, you think about it, putting and pitching and chipping eight and 10 year old kids can do. I mean, it's a pretty simple task. I can find some skills that are more complicated, but those are pretty simple. But if you get scared of it, which is basically admitting, God, when I'm scared, I can look pretty bad. You know, when my head's in a bad place, I can look like I don't have any skill. And, you know, so you got to get people to be really honest about it. But the tendency for educated people is to start thinking more rather than thinking less. And it doesn't matter if it's a catcher in baseball who can throw it to second base on a dime if someone's stealing because they don't have time to think, but throwing it back to the pitcher, they think and they start worrying about throwing it into the outfield. Or the second baseman who can't throw it to first, but you put him at third base and he can throw to first base because it's not so bad if I make a bad throw from third. But if I make a bad throw from second, this is going to look ridiculous. Or in basketball, it's at the free throw line, you know, because this would really be bad if I can't, if I shoot an air ball from the free throw line. I've worked with bowlers. With bowling, it's like in order to throw strikes, you have to roll the ball over the edge of the gutter. And if I get on national TV and throw gutter balls, man, it's going to be really embarrassing. So every sport has something that's really simple that makes us feel uncomfortable. And sometimes when I do talks, uh, I tell you, I tell you, let me just talk to the men here for a moment. And everyone goes, what do you mean? I go, well, I just want to explain to the men, when you miss an easy chip shot or an easy putt, you don't get neutered. In other words, you don't use, lose your male parts. I've never seen it happen. It's just something you made up in your head. And I said, you don't usually see women who think they're gonna lose their femininity with their short game. But you see a lot of men who think they're gonna be less of a man. And I go, you know, it doesn't happen. Next up, episode 486. Man, this was a fun one with Chris DeMarco, of course, talking about Tiger Woods. 
there's probably no golf shot I've seen more often in the last 20 years than the chip on 16. There's probably no person that paid a greater price on the receiving into that chip than you. <laughs> what do you look away when that chip comes on now? Do you get asked about it still every day? What's what's your reaction to see that? You know, at first it was kind of, you know, I was like, wow, you know, I, I can't believe he made that putt. I mean, now you look back and you think about how what the historic value of that chip is to Augusta and if they show the full clip I'll be in that clip all the time because I'm walking up on the green watching that chip come down the hill. I mean, I, th- I had the best view of anybody. I had a better view than Tiger, who was kind of on the back part of the green looking at it. I was watching the thing come straight down at me into the hole, and I'm just – I mean, I'm kind of blowing, <laughs> like, stop, you know. And, and, and you know, it just oh, – we all know the the end. It, it hit. It stops on the edge, and perfect Nike commercial yeah. and drip, drips in. But, um, you know, you look back at that – and. It, if it was 18 and that would have happened, I, I think I probably would have more. You know, if I was Greg Norman watching Larry Mize chip in on me, I think that would, you know, would get me anyway like that. But, you know, watching it, since it was 16 and he went two up the night, you know, I came back and, and won the next two holes to get back to even with him getting to a playoff. I think that, you know, I it, it's not that bad. Yeah. As I said, because in match play, you know, you're, you're supposed to be trained. I know it's not match play, but you're supposed to be trained for – to be prepared for somebody Everything. to hold it from anywhere. Yeah. Could you have possibly been prepared for him to hold that shot? Well, you know, it's funny you say that because it was in 04, I was working with Gio Valiente and we worked specifically on expect the unexpected. So I worked really great at Whistling Straits. Um, you know, obviously I lost in the playoff there. And then to go right to 2005, I was thinking the same exact thing. So in my mind, I had kind of played out every scenario that could have happened. And albeit it wasn't, a lot of situation in my head about him chipping in. I definitely, it crossed my mind. And mm-hmm. then when it went in, it it definitely was surprising, but I, I was just a teeny bit prepared for it. So I yeah. was able to just kind of focus on my, my putt and try to make that. You hit a good putt. I did. It caught the left too, edge yeah. and just missed, yeah. yeah. Um, next up from episode 486 is Padraig Harrington talking about how European innovation has forced the Americans to innovate as well. When it comes to the Ryder Cup, and Europe has to be proud of this, we have pushed the U.S. so hard over the years that they not alone care about it, but everything that we have innovated in the game of golf to get us good at the Ryder Cup, the U.S. guys have now are doing it. They, there's no copied it. Is the word you've been using? I said copied. Yeah, I, yeah, I want to yeah, hear more yeah, about that. Yeah, like you know, every little thing, whether it's the stats or they, they know what we're doing. They've got their formula right. They know they can see the difference. You know. You go back years ago where you say, oh, we'll just throw the balls up in the air. Our players are so good. They, they like, I, I was even, you know, even with the stats, because, you know, our stats guys would be talking about this too. The way to get the most successful four-match result is to try and pair your fourth best team against their, be- their best so that your first, second, third plays their second, third, fourth. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. did that every day. They tried, they never, they, you know, they always their best team never let out number one. They were always trying to do that. You, you know, you can see how they prepared in advance, uh, how they you know they done their work. They're trying hard, and you know Europe has to be very proud that we have we have pushed them into a corner that they care about this Ryder Cup. And you remember when I started playing the Ryder Cup twenty years ago? Yeah, just over twenty two years ago. If you remember, they were talking about payments for the Ryder oh, Cup. Yeah, yeah you, you know, and, and, and you know, was there, was there was there a future to the Ryder Cup? Do we want to be playing this thing? Why are we doing this? You know, it's not like that anymore, is it? No. You know, this is every two years. This is the biggest thing in golf. 
Uh, and you know Europe has driven the US to, to the point you know, we have pushed them over the edge and unfortunately I did say this earlier in some ways we poked the bear <laughs> next up episode 475 with Luke Donald talking about the Ryder Cup I've always felt this you know when it comes time to you know no matter what who the, who the favorite is you know what team who what uh, what guys are being rolled out on each team it felt like Europeans were always there to thrive and the Americans were there not to lose. And I felt like they played with a pressure that was just different. And you guys always look like, maybe it's just because you're winning, but you look like you were having fun with it, embracing the pressure, and it, it elevated your play where it was the opposite on the American side. I'm wondering if that is accurate to how you how you felt, how you feel competing in the Ryder Cup and and what you would attribute that to, if, if so. Um, I... I, I... I pretty much agree with you. I think Americans are always favorites on paper. I mean, they, they always have build a stronger team. World rankings-wise, they out-trump us pretty handily most years on the Ryder Cup, and that's why we, we feel like we're underdogs uh, most of the time. You know, and I think that can those expectations on the, on the U.S. Soldier, uh, shoulders can, can weigh on them. Um, obviously, the record... In the, for Europe versus U.S. since going back to the mid '80s is very much in favor of Europe, and um, I just feel like they feel like they should be winning. They should be winning more. That that record should be more equal or or more to their side, and and that expectation and pressure again can can make you feel like you're you're playing not to lose, right? And uh, and that's not a, a great way to. Uh, approach uh, anything in life, uh, whether it's golf or whatnot. So, yeah, again, we kind of go in there feeling like underdogs, but also loving the pressure of a Ryder Cup and knowing that if we come together as a team, that uh, we can be victorious because we, we've shown that in, in the past. So we have a great record on our side and we just kind of play uh, – play a little bit freer maybe than the, the U.S. at times. Next up, a couple clips from episode 498 with Andy Gardner from the PGL. Uh, a couple of these are just kind of merged together, talking about uh, them not being a competitive threat and precedents for changes in professional golf and whatnot. Again, episode 498, highly recommend this episode with Andy Gardner from the Premier Golf League. We are not a competitive threat. We would like to benefit the entire membership, and we'd like to do this in a non-breakaway form. Hence, we're not a competitive threat. Now, I've been encouraged by various players and told over the last three months, they're bound to talk to you eventually. That might well be the case. And we have inordinate patience, <laughs> as, as we've demonstrated over the years. I absolutely fundamentally believe that the solution that we have devised in the last eight months is the ideal solution. It addresses all of the issues that were raised in the best possible way. And I genuinely think it is in the best interest of the sport and of the existing members of the tour. It will ultimately be their choice and we won't deviate from our path until we're convinced that the opportunity has been understood, considered. And if it is then rejected by the members of the PGA Tour, then fair play. There are a handful of precedents uh, for the league in sport. I'll repeat it because I think it bears repeating. The best precedent for what we're doing is actually the PGA Tour. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. Bizarre as it sounds, it is deja vu all over again. Now that, given that golf is regarded by most as a very traditionally based enterprise, 
you know, the last major change being going from 22 events to eight, uh, 22 holes to 18. That was a precedent for the Premier League over here, the EPL, because 22 clubs broke away from the Football League. It, it was slightly different with F1, but F1 was effectively, now you've got into it, you might recognize the names, but Bernie Eccleston was a team owner. And if I remember my history correctly, he gathered another four or five team owners around. And F1 prior to 1981 was controlled by the FIA and was was run almost exactly as golf is run today, which was the sanction model. So if you wanted to put on a, a Formula One championship race, you would approach the FIA and say, we've got a track or we're going to build one. Um, we would like that circus to come to town. And the FIA would possibly say eventually, yes, there's a there's a slot in the schedule. We can give you this. We can give you this weekend. Um, but it's up to you. As in, the purse is up to you. The field you're responsible for securing. Um, you actually will probably have to do your own production in terms of the broadcast content. And that ended up with the situation which is, is again analogous to golf today so you didn't know who was going to turn up now i was listening i was brought up watching formula one um and i've got to say it started to leave me a little cold probably five or six years ago i am massively into it again this year um and i think we all probably can guess i mean i was listening to it on the radio yesterday and i had you know, hairs standing up on my arms with the attempted and then the suggestion that, you know, Verstappen forcing Hamilton off the track had been something that would result in a penalty. And then the, we're not even looking at it, et cetera. And then the, and then the overtake. I mean, that was just brilliant. Now, you, know, you, you can't generate that type of engagement within golf, but you can. That, that wasn't just the move. It was the fact that it was between those two guys. And it was everything that had gone on this season, you know, the previous penalties, the the creation of the personality of those drivers is it is the job they've done is exceptional. Um, you know, the move when Liberty took it over to we're creating eighteen Super Bowls, uh, just brilliant. Because yes, they should be an event. Now this goes all the way back to what Bernie Eccleston and his fellow team owners said to the FIA. And they said, if we want the world to watch this, we have to guarantee the best possible product we can week in, week out. Next up, episode 494 with golf course architect Mike DeVries talking about giving players options. As a golfer, you have to think, hey, you know, I can't execute the shot that I normally execute here because I can't do that. And if you've got an opportunity or space uh, or an alternative landing area, uh, layup, or in the other turn, you know, hey, I have an opportunity to really go for it right here because of what's happening and how I'm playing today, et cetera. That puts the onus on the player and engages them and really gets them excited about that hole or that, or that day or the golf shot. Any of those elements are, that you can put together makes it more and more exciting and fun for a better round of golf and something you want to go back and try again. So those 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 great courses that you play 
where you get off 18, you're like, I want to go right away. I want to go now. That's what you're searching for, right? You don't want to like get done and go, oh, that was horrible. I want to have 14 beers because I just <laughs> I can't handle it. That was that was too tough or whatever. But if they're like a golf course can be difficult. But if you had uh, really fun shots and you had opportunities to try stuff that maybe you don't get to try elsewhere or that maybe they sort of tempt you to try and maybe you shouldn't try. That's a, that's a whole nother category of things we could talk about. But that's engaging the golfer, and that makes it makes it fun every every day. Next up, episode four ninety six with Justin Thomas talking about the Ryder Cup. What was the process like? I, I, this being you as a leader of this team coming back, this is your second Ryder Cup. But I kind of want to know what the what the player to captain conversations process is like, and filling out six spots. Half the team needed to be filled out by captains' picks. I want to know when that started and how that kind of worked. Yeah, I'm trying to think of when it. Uh really would have started i don't remember like a specific time i mean i would you know sometime early early summer spring you know whatever it was but um but yeah i mean it was it was bizarre because it, you know like when we would text i'm like it's it's exactly what you think like every <laughs> and that's the thing is that people are it's it's so funny reading what people are saying online versus you know knowing what's going on and it's like well you know this could happen this person's this is these stats it's like but is he going to go with this guy? And it's like, well, why are you, why are you overthinking this that much? Well, it's, in it's, the past, the U.S. teams have not always done what, you know, let's get, you know, young guys on a good course fit has not always been the, the Well, the yes, yeah, but operate. I would say the way that, like, the points. We have points, some scar tissues. <laughs> the, way, the way that the points and the rankings and everything worked out, it wasn't like you were you were having to jump to a 17 or 18 to get this young guy or get whatever, you know. It was, it was kind of all, at least at the end, it was all right in front of you. It was it was great conversation. I mean, I, I think that dinner we had a dinner on um, Wednesday or something of, of Atlanta, the Tour Championship, the the six guys that qualified, just talking, kind of just being transparent with the captains and, and talking about what we all wanted, and we we're all on very similar pages. And I think most importantly is that we all were very confident of really any of the picks that that were options. It was like we were so fortunate it's like oh shoot do we pick the 20th ranked player in the world right. or the 23rd <laughs> ranked player? like it was you know we were very fortunate to have such great experienced or at least in terms of playing good golf and big tournaments as options so it was um it, but all of us had the same sort of method or mindset to where like strict like you you've captained teams before and you've done them well and you've been a part of these and you've played in these i'm like you you were the besides Tiger. You've, I mean, not that I've played in that many teams, but he's probably the most, you know, recent whatever player, and he he's just been a part of him not that long ago. I was like, you you know how to do this. Like, don't overthink it. Don't do anything because you feel like you have to do it. Like, your job is to get the twelve best guys that we can get in this tournament, and you got to do that at the end of the day, whether it's what we agree with or not. But you know how we all feel, and it was we were all obviously ecstatic, and I think proved it when we got there. Hmm. And that's the thing is this was I know you can only compare it to the one team that you've been on which is 2018 team but I mean 1711 in France the loss to the biggest beating in in Ryder Cup modern Ryder Cup history something changed in between then part of me still thinks it's you know we got to play better golf whatnot but a part of me thinks that the environment of the team I hate referring to it as the team room which is kind of the metaphor for just the general team chemistry but I think this is kind of I'm I think you know, in almost a decade of obsessing over this event, I'm only f now starting to understand how that contributes to good golf. And I'm wondering if you could speak to that at all, just the 
the comfort level between the two teams, what, when, what changed in the last three years? Yeah, I, yeah, you could. Do, I mean, team room is essentially just saying the, the chemistry of the team. Sure. I mean, it's a very just vague way of saying everything involved. And it's, I mean, it, it was like you said. I've only put, it was only my second one, so it was. It's not like I had a lot to compare to, but it, it was. I mean, we had that practice session at Whistling Straits that week before. I mean, it was like everybody came. The caddies came. The vice captains came. It was like it was. It was extremely impressive. I mean, Strick was blown away. Like how into it everybody was and how dedicated everybody was and I mean I was too it was it was a big deal and it just it just seemed like everybody understood and truly felt like this was a chance that we have the potential to to kind not I don't want to say send a message or or set a precedent but just get things going and for the U.S. and and do it on our home soil and do it with a, a a very new team and a lot of guys that could be playing in a lot of Ryder Cups in the future. And I think we just all were excited. We were hungry. Uh, we were determined. But it was it was such a laid back, fun week. And um, and to be perfectly honest, I think um, it's probably gonna sad sound bad to say, but COVID helped just with not having as many functions and not having as many things to do because, I mean, we do get pulled and, 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 um, and get asked to do a lot of things that week and, and having less to do, I think was more of a normal atmosphere and tournament week for us where guys could do a little bit more of their normal routine. And, and, um, I think that's great. I mean, you, you know, you wouldn't, or you shouldn't want us to be anything outside of our comfort zone for, what is supposed to be our biggest and most important event every two years. So it, it was great. I mean, it just truly was, I mean, France was, was great. We had a, a, an unbelievable time for as much as we got our ass kicked. It just, it, it was very different. It was, it wasn't as much time together just because of that. You know, it was a lot of things that we were doing. We were driving a lot of different places and it just was kind of like wake up and you see the guys you're playing with, you go play, you go do, two hours of media, you go take pictures for this long, you could, you go here, you hurry up, get treatment, you take your 40-minute car ride back, you hurry up, have dinner, go to bed, and do it all again the next day. So it just, it was it was different for many reasons, but uh, but definitely for the better. Next up, episode 495 with Lee Jansen. I love this, talking about how equipment has evolved and kind of why Tiger was able to do things that other people can't do and maybe how that changed over the years. It's easy to say, say now, but at that time, I mean, it was, yeah, I, I could see a lot of you know some of the more uh, grizz- grizzled veterans saying like this is not a slam dunk that this guy is going to dominate out here. Right. Yeah. Our number one player, Nick Price, had a great run and he'd won fifteen to twenty tournaments over four or five year period. And we know Greg Norman was great and contended a ton and won twenty tournaments. So you know most of us didn't think that you know winning seven or eight times a year for a long time was really you know doable. Yeah. Nobody else was coming close to doing that. But we found out differently quickly, and we found out that he was thinking on a whole different level. And what do you have a go-to Tiger story, or, the, or do you remember like the first time that you uh, that you played with him? Well, I played quite a bit with him at Isleworth when he first uh, turned pro. The golf course has been redone now, but I do remember driving in. We played quite a bit, and the one particular morning I'm driving in, and he's on the ninth fairway, and he's getting ready to hit a second shot. I didn't know he was shooting 59. He played the back first finished on the front, and I nearly laid the horn on in the middle of a swing. <laughs> this is right before the Masters? Yeah, yeah I mean, when he shot his 59 yeah. and whatever. So, I, you know, he probably would have never talked to me again. But <laughs> but there were there were a couple times. I know Grant Waite and I were beating him in O'Meara, um, and there was enough wind on 17. We couldn't get to 17 green and two. 
we have drove it perfect and get three wood right up in front and he's like flared his drive and he's got like 270 in the wind and hits it a foot wins the hole and he birdied 18 reversed all the bets and we lost and i'm like you know it's, it's like it would be like playing basketball with Shaq, and he just holds the ball up here. You just can't get it, and you're swinging. I, I'm amazed going back looking at old highlights of what he was able to do with a, a, a 1990s golf ball, and it, you know what I mean as far as the distances he was able to hit it, the the spin he was able to get on the ball. I mean, was, that ball was easier to spin back then. But how I guess I, to frame this into a question: Does it seem like? the technology evolution in the 2000s actually allowed people to stay closer to him than it would have if to, if the golf ball had, hadn't really changed as dramatically as it did? Yes. Um, that's the biggest difference is, well, I don't know if you, the USGA just tested recently a persimmon wood and today's driver with today's ball. And I don't know these numbers for sure, so somebody doesn't have to email me or write me a letter and tell me I'm wrong. But what I thought I heard was same swing speed, dead center hit. It was only eight yards difference. One-eighth of an inch off center, the persimmon was 56 yards shorter. So it was it was just the premium on hitting it in the center of the face was much bigger back then. And that's part of the reason why guys hit it so far now is there's no fear of missing it. So as a kid, you swing as hard as you want right from the start. And it's a little easier to pick up club head speed when you're doing it from the beginning. When you're 50 something and you're trying to figure out a way to swing faster, it's it's a challenge. I'm still trying, but yeah, that's that's about as good as I've heard it heard it summed up in terms of you know watching him wail on balls at the 97 Masters. It was like there's a reason why no one else was wailing on it that hard. Like you could hit it that far if you would connect one out of eight, but he was connecting seven out of eight, and no one else could do that. And uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, obviously, this is the, we're look, we're talking about the the best career ever, but I still wonder what it would look like if if you know things didn't evolve the way that they did evolve right and and he you know he spun the ball a ton and he learned how to manage that um and take the spin off of it and change his swing i mean he transformed a lot of parts of his game um we already knew he, he was tremendously talented and had the drive and you know the ability to get out of trouble and get up and down and just do whatever just hit whatever crazy shot needed to be hit he could do it um, so you can imagine that the equipment made gave everybody else a chance. Everybody else a chance. So yeah, maybe he would have won a hundred tournaments. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Next up, episode four fifty two with Mike Kaiser Jr. talking about his beginnings in golf and how that relates to the golf resorts that he operates now. I want to hear about living in Tasmania and then uh, working with the Sattlers down at at, at Barnbugle. That's a one of the more interesting places I think I've ever been. And uh, how far away from the world did you feel when you were uh, living in Tasmania? Well, I was certainly out, you know, floating on an island in the middle of the nowhere, but I, I didn't have time to uh, put that in perspective. They, they worked me pretty darn hard. I think I got my first afternoon off after five or six months. So we were just, you know, it was an upstart. It was super fun. We were just uh, working around the clock to, to get the business off the ground and to try to make it successful. And I, I just tried to keep my eyes and ears open to learn as, as much as I could from Richard and, and Sally, who are brilliant entrepreneurs. Their family became my surrogate family down under. The two of them were great, great mentors. And I just had an incredible year learning, learning from them. And then what, what was, what did you do at Bandon? What was your involvement at, at Bandon? So Bandon was, uh, I think I said college. It was probably more, I, no, it would have been college. Uh, I started off in agronomy and my first summer I did, uh, we, we had a split shift, so we started agronomy about 4.30 a.m., 
then had a split and came back in the afternoon. So during the split, I worked outdoor services. I worked for Shu, who you probably know, uh, meeting and greeting our, our guests. And then after the second shift, I came back to close outdoor services, you know, wrap up. Um, I think that was, let's see, 90. Uh, it was probably my fresh freshman year of college or senior year of high school. So worked from a few hours before sunup to sundown and then uh, drank a lot of beer uh, after that and slept for a few hours and did it all over again the next day. It was it was a great summer. One of the things that I learned was how much more the caddies made than me at the time. We, we The resort has a, a wage that's higher than minimum wage, but my dad made it an exception for me. Uh, so, you know, making 473 an hour was less appealing when I came back than, than caddying. So uh, in following summers, I caddied, you know, I'm teasing a little bit about the money, but it, it, as a, a young man, it was nice. Uh, but what was wonderful about being with a caddy was just listening to our guests and understanding what resonated with them. You know, what what were the moments in the round that were magical to them and, and what, you know, captivated their imagination. And then from the hospitality, you know, per- perspective, what were we doing right? What were we doing wrong? You know, every day was an opportunity to ask, you know, as, as, as many questions to the guests as I could without irritating them and, and to learn as much as possible about our business through the eyes of our guests. So that, that you know, a big takeaway from Bandon was just that time I had with our customers. Generally, they didn't know that, you know, I was the son of the owner. And, and I got a pretty candid look at, you know, what we were doing right and what we could approve. So wait, your dad made an exception to pay you less than the wage that you were getting paid, but then than the rest of the staff? Yes, we. So we're we're proud of of having a resort and dream golf minimum wage that's significantly higher than minimum wage. But he made a, a special exception for me uh, since I really had no idea what I was doing and didn't deserve more than four seventy three an hour. <laughs> Which, by the way, dwindles after you pay taxes. I don't know what four seventy three you know, ends up with, but even after 90 hours, it's, it's not a whole lot. Just, just enough to buy, you know, some light beer. That is going to do it for 2021. Can't wait to see you guys back here next year. We will be starting out the new year, uh, ringing it in that very first week of the year. You will find some interview pods and the, the usual hijinks Sunday recaps as well. Coming back bigger and better than ever next year. Thank you so much for your continued support of this podcast. Cheers. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Johnny, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most!